two of our most downloaded shows on CFO Bookshelf have been about financial modeling, a topic I never get tired of talking about. Within the past year or so, I have encountered an expert at a software vendor that I love and recommend. It's Quantrix. Her name is Lindsay Weber, and she's left an impression on not just me, but others she works with. And I like to call her a likable expert behind her back. Her story is far from unique. It's fascinating and one that makes a great human interest story. And one might think an expert financial modeler has a deep background in corporate finance. Well, that's not the case here. Lindsay has a degree in engineering from one of the top engineering programs in the country. And then she worked at ExxonMobil for three years before joining Quantrix. And this was a major career change for Lindsay, a move to pre-sales. So what is pre-sales and why the career change and how long did the process take? I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This conversation, it's rich. Lindsay is very articulate, easy to listen to. And again, you're going to enjoy this. Guys, I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Again, our guest is Lindsay Weber, Senior Solutions Consultant at Quantrix. And what prompted me to reach out to Lindsay was an article she wrote on the Pre-Sales Collective website. The article is pivoting into pre-sales, where do I start? It is a great article. And I wanted to hear more, especially someone who is a financial modeler. So before we got into the career pivot, I wanted to set the stage by hearing the differences between pre-sales and the actual sales position. Yeah, I think to me, the difference is not only the point in the sales process where pre-sales enters, versus what I would say a traditional sales role is, but also where the focus or the key motivation is for the different types of roles. So to me, and this is kind of controversial depending on who you ask, but I think pre-sales is set out to support the sales process. I think we are there to help sales be successful and ultimately, of course, to make the sale and help ultimately the customer to be successful. But I think where pre-sales focuses that is slightly unique from those other positions is and I think we'll talk about this maybe later, but being an expert in the product, but also being an expert in the customer's needs, right? The customer requirements. And so one of the unique things to me is pre-sales is really about helping a potential customer see the value and the potential of our solution. And so where I think sales is more focused on making sure that we build that trust as quickly as possible with a potential customer, helping them understand the general offerings of our solution, pre-sales is focused more, I think, on the very technical way as to how we prove out that trust is real, that they can put their confidence in us and in our product. And so a lot more of that focus is on, to me, the technical details of of how we build out that trust. I don't know if it's like this in all organizations, but you also work in post-sales 
as, as well, right? I do. Yeah, just a little bit. And I think part of that is just the, I'm going to say a benefit of working for a small company is I get to be involved in a lot of the different aspects of what we do. Um, but absolutely. And to me, that's part of the conviction you should have as a pre-sales person is setting up hopefully the post-sales team or the post-sale implementation up for success as well. And so I, I actually really do enjoy that part because I, I establish the relationship with our prospects. Hopefully they turn into customers and then we get to keep them as friends. And I do oftentimes help support um, troubleshooting or hopefully expansion of the product at existing um, companies and organizations. And so I do really enjoy the post-sale part of my job too. Now, here is the interesting part. I find this fascinating. So you have an engineering background and how did you go from engineer and then Exxon to pre-sales? That, that, that's an interesting career path. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting too about pre-sales, at least from what I've found, is almost nobody has the same backstory for how they made it into pre-sales. And so I think that's part of what I have found to be really fun is even talking to other people who have ended up in similar roles. Nobody's had the same story yet. But for me, um, I would say even going maybe one step further or one step earlier, um, my favorite subjects growing up in school were always math and English which seems like a very strange combination. Um, I was never the science person. I can't sing. Um, so music was never my thing, but English and math were always kind of head to head. And so when I started out, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a journalist. I love to write. I love to read. Um, I love watching the news. Um, that was something that was really appealing to me. And as we spoke before, um, I actually ended up in a summer program at Mizzou's journalism school um, in high school. And it was a really cool opportunity. They picked 30 students out of the entire country to go for a week, all expenses paid. And you basically got to be uh, a junior journalist for the school um, for a week. And the long story short was I ended up writing an article about Mizzou's engineering department. And they were working on a really cool invention that was developing a toilet actually for third world countries using this crazy process to purify the water at essentially a very low, almost nominal cost. And I just remember so vividly coming back from spending a day in the lab with the engineers, sitting down at the keyboard to write the story and thinking, man, like as much as I'm excited to write the article, I would so much rather be in the lab solving the problem with the engineers. And so that was for me kind of the ultimate switch moment where I just decided, you know, I think I would love journalism, but I, I want to find out if I have what it takes to go the engineering route instead. So yes, ended up at Rala studying um, a degree called engineering management, which is really a hybrid of a business degree with an engineering degree, which was the perfect fit for me. I loved it. There were so many different routes that you could go from an industry perspective um, using that degree. And so I ended up at ExxonMobil and I just remember when I interviewed for that role coming out of college, um, the person who interviewed me told me about a very specific job opening in the strategy division of ExxonMobil in the supply chain for the chemical company. And just as he described that role, I was like, that sounds 
amazing. I love to solve problems. I like jobs where things tend to be kind of ambiguous. And maybe it's the first time anybody's ever had to think about solving this kind of problem. And I ended up getting that position um, when I got hired on. So I was in the strategy and optimization team in Exxon in the supply chain and ended up working on lots of global projects, lots related to technology and also packaging. And um, it was just an incredible experience, opened my eyes to how, um, particularly in supply chain, you have to look at the macro level of problems, right? Especially in a very global business like ExxonMobil. Um, but you still have to take into account the micro level details, right? Because one of the things that we would often see, especially with packaging is, it, it sounds like a silly example, but a, if you could save a dollar on the cost of a, a of a pallet, right? We use pallets to ship a lot of our products worldwide. If you could save a dollar, well, if we use 7 million pallets a year in the supply chain organization, you just saved the company $7 million, right? So even small incremental optimizations or improvements can make huge impacts to the organization. And I think that's really where I started to get this itch for solving unique problems and also trying to convince people, especially leadership, to try something new, try a different approach, even though we've had the same process for many years and it's worked. Um, I like the challenge of introducing a new idea and seeing if we can get the buy-in to try that. Were you doing much financial modeling uh, during that three years? Honestly, not a lot, Mark. Um, I was doing quite a bit of modeling on um, different aspects of the supply chain. Certainly, there was always a little bit of a financial component because we had to justify right whether the project should go on or if we needed to cancel the project. And I had uh, my fair share of projects that uh, we canceled, which is always a little bit shocking and disruptive. But I appreciated having the ability and the influence to do that to say, "Hey, the data is telling us, you know, we shouldn't pursue this any further." Um, but for the most part, a lot of the modeling I would say I was doing was more on um, things like forecasting um, supply chain headcount and planning based on um, analytics we had from performance across employees and then small projects kind of ad hoc based on each of those projects that were a little bit more lined to finance, right? As far as, you know, how many of this app, how many seats are we going to deploy? How many users are we going to have worldwide? What do we think the utilization of the new tool is going to be? Can we justify the annual subscription cost of this product? So there was a little bit of that, but I wouldn't say it was the focus. Let's get into the heart of the conversation and why we're here. And we're going to use an anchor, a word anchor. And the anchor word is going to be the search, the search. So we're going to talk about before the search, during the search, after the search. And this is based on that great blog article uh, you wrote for Presales Collective. It is, I read it twice. It's like, this is, this is rich. This is really, really uh, good. So my question is, we already talked about your itch for wanting to do this, but where, where do you even begin? Because if you go to LinkedIn, if you go to Indeed, or if you go to Career Builder, you're probably going to see thousands, and that may be an exaggeration, but how do you even start the filtering process? Yeah, it's a really good question. And what I would say is um, 
I took a lot of my project management approach from Exxon on this quest to switch to pre-sales. Um, and I don't think I quite recognized that that was the pattern I was using until maybe after the fact. But um, yeah, I decided, you know, what I loved about my roles at Exxon actually had not a lot to do with oil and gas or chemicals. It was more, as we've said, the the ability to focus on strategic projects, influencing without authority, um, solving problems that hadn't been solved before and convincing people to try new things. And so I realized that, you know, there's probably full career paths that I can do this um, if I just start looking for them. And you're right, Mark, when I started this quest on LinkedIn, you know, I didn't even know what the term solutions consultant was. I just happened to kind of stumble upon the role in the job description and it just clicked. I was like, this is this is it. I read the job description. I read all of the key responsibilities and activities. And it was like, I feel like these are most of the skills that I have or that I would love to learn and be good at. Um, I will say, you know, the process to get into my first pre-sales role takes took a lot of patience. Um, I think one of the benefits for me, one of the blessings was I wasn't necessarily in a hurry to, to make the switch. I wasn't under any pressure. I liked a lot of the things I was doing at Exxon, but I did feel that I had reached the point where I knew that I wasn't guarded with the, the funnel concept, right? As you said, there are thousands of different job postings related to pre-sales. There are dozens of different names for roles in pre-sales, solutions consultant, pre-sales professional, solutions engineer, solutions architect, um, and they're all a little bit different. And I think that reflects a little bit of how the pre-sales career path is evolving as people are trying to figure out how do we describe what these people in these skill sets um, do and how they're valuable to an organization. And so for me, what I really ended up doing from the get-go is um, and I referenced this in that article, but I essentially made three buckets of information that I just started organizing all of the things I was reading about these job descriptions. And it was essentially an outline of, okay, what are the things I'm reading that I like, that I find interesting, that I feel like I'm capable of doing? The second bucket was something along the lines of, okay, you know, what are the things that um, I see that I don't necessarily have do, or at least I think I could convince somebody to take a chance on me being able to do, I have the potential to do. And then the third bucket was um, more of the negative side of that coin, which is what are the things about the job descriptions I'm reading that I'm like, Ooh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would enjoy that, or I don't think I'm capable of doing that. I really feel like that's a gap in my experience. And just going through the exercise of looking at those job descriptions and putting those points into those buckets really gave me a pattern that I could follow to say, okay, I have a very clear understanding now of what my capabilities are, how they could potentially fit into a role like this, and where maybe some of the, you know, the gaps are in my experience that I need to make sure that as I'm preparing my resume and going into, into interviews that I have a way to handle those potential doubts or those gaps when I'm talking to an interviewer. Did you have maybe a fourth unnamed bucket as in the culture of the organization? Absolutely. Yes, I did. Um, and like I said, you know, for me, um, I am nothing but grateful for starting my career at ExxonMobil. I had so many, I think, very unique opportunities in just a short amount of time and being able to start my career where I did um, that 
there were a lot of components of the culture at Exxon that I, I really respect and I admire. Um, at the same time, one of the things that was very intriguing to me was going from a very, very large company, um, very large organization to maybe something that was smaller. Um, again, I was fortunate in my space in Exxon that um, this little strategy group kind of worked not quite like a startup, but it was very, um, you know, self-running. Um, you had a lot of freedom. You got to challenge a lot of the status quo, which is not usually the normal case if you're working at a large company. And I wanted to keep that um, going forward. So I was I was a little bit more drawn to the companies that either were smaller by footprint and employee count, but also hopefully through the interview process, I'd be able to glean from the interviewer if the culture also accepted that approach of kind of making the role your own, challenging the status quo and being able to take on responsibility in other portions of the business if you express the interest to do so. I am a cognitive fact finder. So I'm a little bit long in the tooth is I've got to have all the facts. I, I, I've, I've got to keep asking those questions. Did you reach out to someone in a similar role to say, what's it like? Or how did you get that first position? Did, did you have that type of a sounding board early on? You know, I would say, Mark, my main sounding board, as has been throughout my whole life, I'm very blessed. Um, I have a great relationship with both of my parents. My dad is in consulting. Um, and so while he's never been in a traditional pre-sales role, I texted him one day, or I think I even sent him a screenshot of one of those job descriptions. And I was like, dad, like, I think this is it. Like, I've never heard of this. And he was, he was like, I can't believe I never thought to even tell you about this because I think you would be an awesome fit. Yeah. This makes total sense. Right. He's like, you should go for it. Um, but I didn't have anybody that I knew directly that, was in that sort of career path that I could reach out to. And so I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but the pre-sales collective was something that I didn't find until about four months into my role at Quantrix. Um, and it's been extremely valuable, but I can't imagine how much easier the process might have been if I had known about that resource before and could have connected with some people who had made that transition before I did. That's, that's again, kudos to your, to your father. So we move from before the search. Now we get into the actual search itself. So once you start turning in your resume, and by the way, I'm going to come back to the resume process in a minute about how long did it take before making those first connections with employers to then getting interviews? Yep. For me, I would say if I look back at the timeline, I think I started perusing job descriptions in March of 2020, just casually at first. And then once I found the solutions consultant role, I started getting a little bit more aggressive and prepping my resume and things like that. But I would say from the point of first applying to that group of jobs that I had found to the first um, responses that I was getting from, from companies was um, probably a month, maybe a little bit longer. So um, it was not like, you know, the first, I'm a fishing person too. I do a lot of trout fishing. And so it wasn't like first cast, you know, that we, we hooked a big, a big fish. Um, it definitely took about a month, I think, before I started getting um, noticed and getting some responses from people asking for preliminary calls and interviews. Did you get discouraged ever in the process? You, you seem very positive. Uh, was it pretty positive throughout the entire process? Do you get uh, frustrated or 
what was it like with those first calls and second calls? Yeah, I think everybody has the point where they start second guessing whether they actually have the ability, right? And whether or not they are going to get noticed. Um, so the, the first four weeks of radio silence were tough, of course, because you've put so much time into polishing your resume. You think you've cracked the code, right? Um, and then you don't hear from anybody. And that's that's challenging. That's kind of tough. And you know, the other comment I'll make is, it felt as though I was in a weird position career-wise because a lot of the roles that I was finding either said that they were tailored to new college graduates. I had graduated three and a half years ago from college, um, or they were looking for people with five to eight years of corporate experience. I had, again, three and a half, so not including tweener. internships. Yeah. And it was like, there were no roles I was finding where they were like, we're looking for somebody with a little bit of experience, but um, you know, it can be from a variety of different backgrounds. And so it did feel a little bit like, man, I might have a, a, a steeper hill to climb here than I had originally thought. Um, because I didn't know at first if people were kicking me out automatically because I didn't meet some of those kind of prescribed time-based experience requirements for the job. I'm thinking here's an engineer who can calculate, who can count from infinity backwards in their sleep. (laughs) They can write, they can talk, they can think on a macro, a micro basis, just all those other people, they're idiots. Um, so, so I just, just had to, to say that. Speaking of the resume, <laughs> speaking of the resume, any tips for other people? There are probably 5 million ways to create, construct of the resume. And by the way, you probably had to, I don't know if you had to clean up or uh, rearrange anything on LinkedIn, but any suggestions there just from the resume front? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I will say, I think having a little bit of that journalism background helps um, because even if... um, you've never been interviewed, if you've ever had to interview someone else, it can really shift the perspective. And I think take some of the pressure off of the daunting task of writing and reframing your resume. Um, I think, you know, there's a few basic suggestions or points that I would give based on just my own personal experience. One being um, you should always reframe your resume based on the person or the company that is wanting to hire somebody like you. So the example that I've given people before is um, if I were a journalist and I had to come up with my next story and I had a sense of who I was going to interview, it would be a dream come true if that person came to me and said, by the way, I've written up just a few questions that I think you should ask me that I have really interesting answers to. 
And as a journalist, I'd be like, this is sweet. Like, this is the exact type of person I want to talk to because they've made my job easy. They've told me exactly what I should ask them to find that unique story that's going to be resonating with the audience. And the secret is that's the resume, right? I think it helps if you can flip the script a little bit to say, look at your resume as here are the questions interviewer that you should ask me because I have really good answers to these questions, right? And the benefit of that is A, you get to drive the content of the interview a little bit more if you present your resume with the most impactful, interesting points of who you are and what you've done. But you're also going to make it easier for the interviewer to know, what should I ask this person? Where should I start? What is special that I should make sure that before this call or this interview ends that I have made notes of so that other people can think about whether this person is right for this role? This is opinion. You can disagree with this. I'm making a prediction that in five maybe a few years, you're going to be someone who ends up hiring people in your current role. That's my prediction. Now, if that's a true statement, and I think it will be, would you find it beneficial if LinkedIn had a place where you could drill down, you'd need permissions, but drill down on a candidate and there's a this private area that each person, each candidate has a few videos my name is, here's where I went to school, here are some of my points of view on certain areas, here's why I'm interested, you get the idea. Do you think that would be helpful to augment the resume? Yeah, I do. Um, You know, one of the challenges I think with how things are with recruiting and interviewing today is if you are not a resume writing kind of person, um, I'm one of those really weird people that actually enjoys the process of retooling the resume and thinking through the interview process. Um, but there's a lot of people that are not like that. And the process just brings nothing but stress and terror and anxiety. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's really hard to capture your personality on a resume, especially when, as you already said, there's thousands of templates and strategies and suggestions on should you you know, put a color on your resume? Should you make it look like a blog post? Should you put your photo on it? Can you get crazy with the design? Should it be like Comic Sans 0.12 and nothing else? Um, and so I think giving people the ability to include other types of media in their overall kind of job portfolio is awesome. And, um, you know, even right now, the the whole idea of being able to see somebody, right, and watch them describe their story or their background puts a lot more people at ease and comfort. And also, I think, gives them a chance to reflect their personality a little bit more than, you know, a, a sheet of paper can often do. So I've actually seen, Mark, that there's a few features that LinkedIn is starting to roll out that are kind of along that line. So I'm hopeful that um, here in the in the short term, in the future, that LinkedIn will continue to kind of give people the ability to share share their story in different forms and in different types of media. My name is obviously, and I don't look like her, I'm obviously not Oprah. So I'm not going to ask you the question, well, how many offers did you get? I'm assuming the offer started rolling in. How did you make that decision? I'm going with them. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, one of the benefits of interviewing is, 
it's a two-way conversation and you hear a lot of people give that advice, but I think it is invaluable is, you know, don't ever look at an interview as just a test as to whether or not you are the person that's perfectly matched for a position, but you should look at every interview as the ability and the opportunity to scout out your fit at that company and whether that company is going to check the boxes that you have for the type of place that you want to work at and the type of people you want to work with and for. And so for me, one of the things that stood out about Quantrix was, of course, the fact that the company was smaller, um, that it had this kind of unique business structure where um, it's owned by a larger company. And so you get a lot of the um, benefits of, of being within a larger organization, but they kind of had the same cultural feel to me as my strategy group at Exxon, where it's like, we kind of run our own show. We get a lot of freedom to do things the way that we want. And the company is so small that if you volunteer to do work in any area, you're probably going to get the chance to do it. And so a lot of, as we already talked about, a lot of the cultural components of Quantrix are really what stood out to me as being kind of the right fit for where I wanted to start a path in pre-sales. And I've been to your corporate headquarters. I know you're not in Maine, up in Portland, but you talk about one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It certainly mm-hmm. uh, is. I know you are a self-reflective uh, uh, person. You're, you're probably very introspective. So I know you're going to answer this question fully, but you have this new role, kind of new career position. How would you grade yourself now? Might even ask, let's back up a little bit. Did it take maybe two, three months to where you could say, I've got this? When did that feeling come? Was it three months out, two months out? I'm guessing two would be too soon. Two would be too soon, I think. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of interesting metrics that try and capture what's the the runtime before a pre-sales person or a solutions consultant can be fully, you know, utilized in the process. And I would say it, it seems about the four-month mark is maybe where it started to feel the way I would describe it is um, similar to how I would have described it at, at ExxonMobil, where there's not this sense of like fear when you log in to your computer in the morning thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to come in seeing or what I'm going to have to do. I would say about the four-month mark, I had had some chances to start testing out my ability to um, demonstrate the product, answer some technical questions, um, deal with some objections, right? I mean, that's a lot of what pre-sales does too, is you're trying to um, showcase why your product is going to solve a problem. And so people are going to have questions about well, you know, I see you can't do this or it doesn't do that. You know, why would I why would I still choose to invest in this product? And so I would say 4 months is about where I had more confidence than doubt, but there certainly wasn't zero doubt. I think that that is um a process that always continues in a battle that you always have, particularly with um the Quantrix product. One of the things I love about it is it is extremely agile, flexible. We've got probably hundreds of different use cases. And so for me, the doubts have gone less to, I don't know that much about the product to, we might have a prospect come in today that wants to do a leveraged buyout model. And I'm like, hmm, you know, I'm not a finance major. Uh, I've never experienced an LBO before, but um, I'm going to learn enough here quickly to see how I can translate the 
financial calculations of an LBO model from another tool into Quantrix and hopefully show them not only that, of course, the numbers are working out, but show them why building an LBO model in Quantrix is going to save them time or give them better insights or help them you know, earn trust with their auditors or the the investment panel that they're working with. And so that to me is more of the challenge that I deal with on an almost daily basis. But I think that's also what what keeps me excited about the the unique opportunity I have at Quantrix is because I'm literally learning about a new industry, I feel like every single week and starting to get a little bit better of an understanding of how that how that industry operates and what's important to them. I have not been paid to say this. So this is a a bold statement. I would say and will say I'm very familiar with the financial modeling uh, industry going back to the late 1990s. And I will say that Quantrix is probably the most powerful modeling tool on the planet. Now, and I, I think it's okay to mention other products like people may say Anaplan. Yes, Anaplan is powerful. But the reason I say Quantrix is so powerful is your mind is your own limit. And you're, right. you're not restricted to just doing financial modeling. You can do business modeling. You can do operations modeling. Uh, you and I got to see a physicist do some very sophisticated Monte Carlo analysis mm-hmm. uh, at, a, at a webinar that you or seminar you all put on this week. So I'm saying that because you stepped into a position where Powerful can also be complex, and I and the either you're really smart and you're being humble, or I, I'm amazed at how quickly you learned this piece of software to where you can be effective in having conversations with people who will essentially write you checks. Yeah, it's um, I am certainly not a genius. Um, I do think I am a pretty quick learner. Um, in fact, that's something that I I tried to to focus a lot on on my resume. Is I I enjoy and think I tend to thrive in being thrown into those kind of ambiguous situations where there's not a blueprint. Maybe I'm the first person to do it, or um, you know, there's no kind of secret content that I have available to show me how to get started. And so I I tend to like kind of that tension <laughs> that comes from being in that spot. But I think, Mark, you know, what I would say is everything you've said about Quantrix is exactly right. And it's the same reason I love the tool is because it really is, you, you are only limited by your imagination, right? As far as what you want to build, how you want to build it. Um, you know, I've, I've told people before, especially if you're coming from spreadsheets, like I did at Exxon um, with a lot of my projects, the things that you love about spreadsheets you get to keep in Quantrix. The things you don't like about spreadsheets, you don't have to ever think about again in Quantrix. And there were so many projects um, that I had in supply chain. In fact, a lot of operational kind of SNOP type work I had to do in the last um, few months of my time there that had I known about a tool like Quantrix, it would have saved my global team probably hours of work when we had disruptions in our supply chain and we had to work quickly across time zones to come up with solutions. Um, what we had in place as far as the weren't built for back of the napkin, um, super blue sky type modeling where we couldn't look to like an ERP system and say, okay, well, you know, there's no scenario built in here that says that we've got to move all of our product from Europe to Asia in two weeks with the supply chain disruptions we have. Like there was no 
there's no tool that could just automatically produce that for you. And Quantrix would have helped us do that so much faster. But, um, you know, what I would say as far as being able to build these different types of models, one of the benefits of my job um, that I think reflects a lot of my degree even is um, I'm an expert, I would say, in Quantrix, but I'm never an expert in any of any of the industries or applications that I'm helping to illustrate the possibility of how Quantrix can drive the value. I get to be what I would say is like the Swiss Army knife of Quantrix, right? I I can do quite a few things in a lot of different areas, but I'm never the the jackhammer, right, or the super precise surgical tool that you're using in the operating room. Um, and so a lot of the experience that I've been very fortunate to get as far as needing to learn things on the fly, learn the key drivers and motivations for a project and where the value is, um, is something that's helped me over time start to hone how I go about building a prototype of something in Quantrix in an industry that I'm really not an expert in. Speaking of Quantrix, how did you find them? Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story, I would say, because, um, of course, I applied to the Quantrix job opening at the same time I probably applied to a handful of others. Um, and as much as I think I'm a pretty studious email tracker and I've got you know my own spreadsheet strategies for tracking jobs in the pipeline and, and whatnot, um, you know, I think the job posting for Quantrix came through originally from our parent company, which is IDBS. And so I didn't quite see originally the focus of it's a Quantrix specific solutions consultant role. Um, but when I got the phone call and got into the process, of course, I got access to a lot more of the information on what the role was, spent a good amount of time on the Quantrix website. And um, I think it was Brad, Brad's the the GM of Quantrix. He had a, a demo video of the tool on the website and I watched it of course, ahead of my interview, uh, interviews with the team, and it just blew my mind, right? As far as what the tool is capable of, and so um, I feel like although I didn't know exactly what I was uh, applying for at the beginning, it was very, very early into the process of interviewing with Quantrix that I realized that okay, this is special. This is different from a lot of the other roles I've been looking at, applying for, interviewing for, and I wanted to hear a lot more. And I was very fortunate to be able to talk um, with Brad early in that process and interview with him. And, um, you know, a lot of the credit I would say goes to Brad because one of the things I was looking for was that cultural fit and a place where there was a pretty ambitious vision for where we wanted to take the company. And they were looking for somebody to kind of join that charge and take a pretty influential role in helping to get us there. And all of that was extremely appealing to me. I was going to say, I, I have nothing but just positive things to say about your entire team. You're talking about Brad Hopper. Uh, I keep calling him the CEO and I, I he'll probably, he, he really is. He really yeah, that's is. A, it's and, a, it's a good role fit. And, and Tom uh, who works in sales is, is like a brother to, I just, I love that guy. I, I like behind your all's backs. I call you guys likable experts. I've, I never feel condescended. I mean, you guys, and I know some of the people who used to be at Quantrix uh, who got on to do other things. Some of the most intelligent people, I've ever have encountered, but yet uh, humble and authentic. And that's one thing I just appreciate about your organization. A couple of quick questions here. It just, just some quick advice. And I know as we start packaging some of everything you said, 
looking back, what would be maybe two or three tips, advice that you have for someone that wants to follow your path, suggestions, don't do this, accentuate this. You have some suggestions. And again, I know you can go to the, it's in the article, but anything else you can think of? Yeah, I think, and this really goes for any sort of job search, not even just in pre-sales, but I think it is often challenging, but necessary to start the process with getting a good understanding of what your unique skills are. Um, for me, that's really difficult as much as I am. I do tend to be kind of a self-reflective person. I think a lot of people struggle with describing what they bring to the table that's kind of unique. And I think that that is really step one when you're looking to move to a different career path is figuring out what are those unique skills and how can those be valuable in a completely different career path than what you've done so far. Because if you can describe and show people how you bring something different to the table and why it's valuable. It's kind of like demoing, right? It's the same kind of idea. I think it's so funny, the the parallels between how you prepare in pre-sales for a demo and talking to a customer and how you prepare yourself for an interview or for a career switch. I think the the process is very, very similar. It's just Rather than um, pitching a product, you are the product, right? And so um, understanding who you are, what is unique about you, what you bring to the table, I think is essential. And then what I would say too is, um, again, not even really specific to pre-sales, but um, taking some of the pressure off of yourself and giving yourself the ability to um, smile or laugh or deal with the imperfections in the process only ever helps you. Um, I'll give a a 30 second story here, which I think is so comical, but it's proven to be true every time. I once had to take a job interview in my car because five minutes before the interview started, the fire alarms in my apartment complex were tripped by somebody. There was not an actual fire, (laughs) but the alarms were blaring. You've got the flashing lights. And I was like, well, I don't have time to you know, tell them I, I need to reschedule. So I picked up my laptop and turned on the hotspot on my phone, sat in my car. And um, it actually turned out to be an awesome interview because when I started it, it was like, hey, I'm calling you from my car and you might see a fire truck uh, blow behind me in the in the window, but don't worry about it. Somebody, you know, is is trying to cook rice on their stove and they forgot to put water in the pot or something. And so, you know, things like that, for me, that's a silly story, but I think being able to bring a sense of humor and show that you're you're human and you're not perfect and that you can also roll with the punches like having a fire alarm, you know, get get turned on right before your interview um, and how you can roll with that can be a really great um, way to show people, again, kind of your personality and what they can hopefully expect of your response when things are challenging or um, when you're thrown into a, a position that was kind of unexpected. This is going to get a little bit off topic and I'll keep it brief and it's going to be at the risk of embarrassing you. Um, I wrote an article four or five years ago for FP&A Trends on their website and I talked about the three roles of, of FP&A and it's just a simple mental construct. I talked about the architect, uh, I talked about the analyst and I talked about, and I use the word storyteller because everyone can relate to that, but I call it the communicator, almost like the journalist, the person who can explain. 
And you can relate to that. Someone who has, I'm going to say you've got a journalism background and that has always resonated with me because I found some of the best financial modelers. They start out being great architects. They can tell you everything. I mean, they can, they love that tool. And when you visit with them, they talk about the X's and the O's and and they just love That's the architect. And then the analyst is going to be the person who takes that information and then they make sense of it. They're not building it, but they're, they're slicing it and dicing it kind of like what uh, a good journalist is going to do. And then you got that person upstream who can take all that and tell the story. And again, I don't have a a question to ask you, but I just want to just plug you a little bit because you're rare. I would say 2% to 5% of the financial modelers who are really good have all three of those. You're usually one of them strong in one. You might be strong in two, but to have all three is very, very rare. And the reason I want to bring this up, since financial modeling has come up, it's something you can't teach. You spend a lot of time with financial modelers around the globe. Mm-hmm. Do, how are, Am I right that it's that's hard to teach to have all three of those? Have you encountered that you're usually one of those three? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you're you're too kind, Mark. I don't know that I would say I'm I'm all three you of those. You are. Um, you are. <laughs> but um, you know, again, I love my job at Quantrix and part of the reason I love it too is the people I get to meet that are literally all over the world about Exxon was just the ability to work with people from every corner of um the map and I would say, you know, what is kind of cool about pre-sales is you get to meet all three of those types of people in the process, right? Um, From a technical selling perspective, usually I am trying to help engage and influence somebody from all three of those buckets, right? There's always going to be a, what I would call like a, the architect might be the power user, right? right? It's kind of the person who is the most knowledgeable about the process. They understand the very detailed, intricate mechanisms of their financial reporting, all of the details of how the business is structured. There's always an analyst (laughs) that I am working with, right? And they are the ones that I'm really trying to um, draw the lines of, here's what's challenging about the tools you use today to do your job and how Quantrix can help you do those things better, easier, with less friction, with less risk, right? They're kind of the technical people um, from a tool perspective I'm working with. And then I think the storyteller, there is almost always a, that we are trying to work with to say, from a macro perspective, here's why it's important that Jamie, the analyst and Bob, the architect, right tool, because what that's going to mean is, you know, more scenarios faster, or the next time you're in the boardroom meeting and a new is launched yesterday, and you want to see those projections in your readout, right, to the rest of the team and the investors, you're going to have a tool that you have confidence in its accuracy. And it's also going to save your analyst and your architect time. So they didn't have to be up until three o'clock last night, trying to put together that new break-in project for your report this morning. Right. And so um, I think 
part of the benefit of my job and the humbling part is I'm never the smartest person in the room and I'm definitely never the expert. And I actually love that part of my job because I get to help the experts do their job better. And hopefully um, more than that, I'm, I'm not just trying to solve a problem, but I'm trying to create new opportunities and show them new possibilities of how they can do more than they've been able to do previously with the existing tools that they've had. Last question. And again, thank you for all of this, Lindsay. Last question. It sounds like you're a reader. What are yes. some of your favorite titles? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's really tough. I am a reader. Um, I will say I really love fiction. So I am much more inclined to read fiction than I am nonfiction. However, I'll say the caveat to that has always been, there's kind of this unique subset genre of fictional books that have a business lens to them right? Or even um, some biographies or autobiographies that kind of lend themselves to a really adventurous, but business oriented um, type of story. And so um, a couple that come to me um, off the bat would be things like, um, there's a book that is about daylight savings time seems really relevant right now because we just went through that in the U.S. Um, about the history of daylight savings time and the role that Ben Franklin had in it and some of the politics and the conspiracy behind it. Um, it's got a little bit of a more storytelling novel type flow, but it it takes a lot of historical but also business background because there's a lot of financial um, motives behind why we introduced daylight savings time. So I can give you that title later. Um the autobiography of Roald Dahl. He's a famous children's book writer. Um, he had a crazy childhood story, ended up being really entrepreneurial in addition to writing um, tons of some of my favorite books um, growing up as uh, as a kid. But, you know, I would say it's a lot of fiction. Um, otherwise, I'm reading a lot of books that have kind of a business lens, but still have kind of an adventurous storyline. Um, the one I just started this week that was different um, and was actually recommended through the pre-sales collective Radical, Radical Candor, um, I think it's by Kim Scott, is a is kind of a leadership book. Um, and so I just cracked that one open actually uh, this week. And so I'll have to report back on that one. But I read a lot. I also listen to a lot of podcasts. My husband and I were really big into How I Built This with Guy Raz. He's great. Um, we, Yes, we we listen to that like every time we're in the car. Um, and it's one of those podcasts, I think, that you either come away inspired or kind of crushed because you're like, wow, I'm just not that talented and I don't think that way. Um, but we we like to listen to those and kind of brainstorm ideas. And, and usually we're inspired by hearing other people's stories of the things that they've come up with. Do you remember the title, the one you're talking about, Daylight Savings Time? That one is called, let me see, I made a note here. That one is called... Seize the Daylight. And it's by um, David Perot. So I, I can give you that one, but it's it's good. It's I'm really interesting. Very, very intrigued. Lindsay, I've taken up a ton of your time. This has been, you, you've exceeded expectations. Well, thank you, Mark. This has been um, truly an honor. I'm humbled that you even asked me <laughs> to, to be a guest here today. And so thank you so much. Um, I've loved the conversation. And also thanks for all that you've done being a part of the, the Quantrix community. We really appreciate you being a, a user. And um, it's been so fun being here with you today. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. 
Lindsay Weber, Senior Solutions Consultant at Quantrix. Again, thank you very much. If you have a question for her, look her up on LinkedIn. I have a feeling she'll be very happy to answer any follow-up questions you may have. I'm not paid to say this. Again, Quantrix, I love their tool. I love the software. To me, it's mind-blowing what you can do uh, with that tool. You can do any type of modeling you can come up with. And as we said on the show, your mind is your own limit. Quantrix.com. Again, she mentioned Pre-Sales Collective. She's a part of that community. You want to check them out? It's presalescollective.com. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. Keep learning. Keep making a difference. See you next time. This is CFO Bookshelf.